Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. So just let's set the record straight. I'm not sure what the record is, but I'm going to set it straight here. Danny Moses, Demo, it's just been on fire. And if I'm not mistaken, Dan Nathan, I think you owe him a hundy. A hundy, as they say. A hundy. 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 I took Tampa Bay at home laying nine. Is that what I took last week against the Cowboys? You did. I believe that's the case. And Danny Moses, who's been, we're going to talk about that a little later. He's been, what do the kids say? En fuego or something on fire. The fire fire emoji. emoji. He is fire emoji. Dan, may I ask you a question, Dan? Yeah. Your voice is, it's tough. It's got the Demi Moore thing going, but it works for her. It doesn't work for you. You were at the Food Fighters concert on Sunday in Coney Island. By the way, just for you folks listening, I would rather stick pins in my bleep than go to the Food Fighters concert anywhere. Did you say Food Fighter? I love the Food Fighters. Yeah, he had Nathan's hot dogs down there, right, for the food, Dan? It's funny. We parked right near Nathan's, and I thought about crushing a dog. I will tell you what my wife and I – it was Monday night, actually, and at this Ford Amphitheater right on the boardwalk, and as the Foo Fighters guy were playing, rocking out to songs like Everlong, and One of These Days the Ground Will Move Below Your Feet. These are all market-themed sort of songs – The skies opened up. The thunder and lightning rained. I will tell you, I did something like as if I was millennial or something. After the show, at midnight, my wife and I went to Sheep's Head Bay, and we got roast beef sandwiches at an old school place called Rollin' Roaster. You probably used to roll up there back in the 50s, guy, you know, when you were in like your Goodfellas mode and everything like that. Yes, and our DeSotos. Roll and Roaster. What'd you call that song before? Ever, ever, ever long, ever, ever, ever long. Isn't that like the Pearl Jam song, Thoughts Arrive Like Butterflies, or is that a different song? So I'm going to see Pearl Jam ah. this, this Saturday on another beach in Asbury Park, and then Danny and I are going to see Pearl Jam on another beach. Where, where are we going, Danny, next week? California IA, down at uh, Dana Point Ohana Festival. I seem to recognize your face. Yeah, we're going, Dan. Do you just did? Oh, that was stop, guy. No, I don't know these bands. I'm sure they're great bands. I will say this real quickly, guy. 30 years ago this month, I started college. It was my freshman year, and Pearl Jam's 10 came out, and Nirvana's Nevermind, which obviously Dave Grohl was the drummer. And those two albums really, I think, shaped the course of that decade for music. Danny Moses, would you agree with that? I 100% agree. Yep. Joshua Tree prior to that was, it was Joshua well, Tree. That, then, that was 1987. I know. I said prior to that. I got 87. you. Okay. It shaped the 90s music. Okay. I agree to disagree. And moving on. We are moving on. Quickly, though, Danny Moses, there's some marquee NFL games. I mentioned this because later on here... We're going to have the great Endomican Sue join us. So there are a couple of games that stick out to me, Demo. The one that just jumps off the page is the Sunday night game, the Chiefs in Baltimore at 830. Talk to me about that game. I got to take the Ravens and the points coming off a disappointing loss that they should have beaten the Raiders and they didn't. Kansas City barely got by Cleveland. We liked Cleveland and the points last week. I'm going to take the Ravens in their home opener plus three and a half guy. How do you feel about that? 
Look at you. I love the Ravens this year. I'll tell you, that Raider game, they should have just... When you have the ability to step on your opponent's neck in an NFL game, you do it. They didn't do it. They let the Raiders off the mat, and the Raiders won their home and open with fans. At a, at a, by the way, that stadium is ridiculous. I'm sure Danny, Dan Nathan's been there. I haven't been. Not far from there. i got to throw in a college pick for the week because there is, a, there is a matchup of epic proportions. Not so much to determine the national championship, but just the long-term tradition of college football. You have Auburn going into Happy Valley into Penn State. They've only met twice ever, and that was both in bowl games. Last one, I think, was 2003, I want to say, when they hooked up last time. They've split in the past. But you give me Auburn, the line opened getting six and a half. The money's been coming in on them. It's down to, I think, five, if not four and a half. Take Auburn in the points. SEC, you know, Big Ten. How many times do we have to see these matchups occur before they, people realize the speed difference of those, two, of those two conferences? The War Eagles, as they say. Dad Nathan is rolling his eyes. I will tell you that when I was a young person, I believe it's 1987, New Year's Eve, I went to the Sugar Bowl to see Auburn play Syracuse. I believe Don McPherson was on that team. It was a 17-17 draw, as they say. It was a tie. You know what they called that? They called it the tie-die. Remember Coach Die was Pat the coach Dye, of Auburn? Sure. And he went for a field goal rather than to try to win it for the national championship. So they kind of split the title. My parents were at that game in 1987. Oh, really? Yeah. See, if they, can you imagine if we had met? They would have liked me then, too. They like me now. Before we get into it, Danny, and Dominican Sue is here, I think you got the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at home. I believe they're at home against um, the lowly Atlanta Falcons. Big line, I think you lay the wood. Of all the people, Sue has dominated Atlanta. They met twice last year. I think he had four sacks between those two games, and so he knows how to get after Matt Ryan. That's a lot of wood. That's 12 and a half. Atlanta coming off a loss like that. I don't know. I'm going to have to go with Tampa because we have him on as a guest today, but I, if you had to force me, I'll take the points in Atlanta. Sorry, I will. That's a lot of points in the NFL. All right, well, hold on. So I need to get my hundy back, right? So I will... I will take Tampa, giving you 12 and a half at home. And I will say one thing. A friend of mine, Dave Ragone, is the brand new offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons. And I love him. He was a great quarterback at Louisville. He was a Cardinal. He played in the NFL and a bunch of different teams. And it's his first year there. He may have something for Tampa Bay, but I'm going to go against Dave here, right here. And I'm going to go with Donegan because he's on our podcast. Minus 12 and a half. Danny, you got that? Double or nothing? I got it. Yep, I got it. I'm taking the Falcons. We call that you're chasing. By the way, you're listening to On the Tape with the aforementioned Dan Nathan, the aforementioned Danny Moses, and I am Guy Adami. Today we're talking about signs, potential signs, of a market top. A crisis in China, and you know what? This is a crisis in China. I don't think the market is taking it as seriously as it should. A big development in the cannabis space. Later, we're going to go off the tape with NFL star, as we mentioned, and investor in Dominican Sue. By the way, I also believe Brady Cobb is going to stop by for a while just to chat about what's going on in cannabis. We got a jammed pack show, but let's talk about the market because the signs, what was that group, signs, signs, everywhere, sign, wasn't it? There was a Tesla, right? They were Tesla before Tesla. Well, the signs are there, and I'm telling you that if you look below the surface, there are a lot of very concerning things here with the S&P 500 
within a whisper of an all-time high, Dan Nathan. Yeah, I think we talked about this last week a little bit. The chorus of market strategists calling for that sort of 10% plus correction is growing louder and louder by the day. I will say that peak to trough declines have gotten uh, shallower and shallower. The rallies off of those declines have gotten shorter and shorter. It really feels like the tension is building in the S&P 500. The NASDAQ, I mean, come on, we can look at all this breadth data. It's not particularly great. We know a handful of names are holding them all up. I'm not even going to talk about it. But I think most importantly this week, Apple had run into this product event. It sold off on a ruling from a judge. They had that negative ruling about take rate within the app store here. The stock has come in. It's broken that uptrend that had been in place for the last few months. So if you were to see Apple break on fundamental news, Amazon already broke on fundamental news. It did fill in some of that gap. But you really need Microsoft and Google and Facebook to start to participate. And then you have a market that is really headed back below that uptrend trend and maybe back towards that 200-day moving average. Well, we've been saying all along that you can feel underneath the surface of this market. It's not healthy. And Scott Minard Guggenheim put out a tweet, and it actually said that the 20% decline club is getting larger. 15% of big cap S&P 500 are more than 20% below their 52-week highs. But there's a ton of mid-cap and small cap. As a matter of fact, 48% of the S&P small cap stocks are now down at least 20% from their highs. That just tells me that things don't appear as healthy as they seem. I agree with that. We had Mike Wilson on Fast Money earlier this week, and he was calling for, and he has been a 10% decline, and that chorus continues to grow. More and more singers are adding their voice. By the way, I would be an alto, I believe, if I were to join a chorus, and I do have a great voice. For you folks listening at home, I do a mean Stevie Ray Vaughan. I also do a mean Leonard Skinner, but that's neither here nor there. Mike Wilson, maybe on another show. You know, maybe I'll just do a karaoke show for the folks at home. But again, Mike Wilson sees the same thing we're talking about, declining breath. You know, below the surface, there are a lot of stocks that are not performing well. And what we have here are just a handful of names that continue to prop this entire market up, in my opinion. We're going to talk about China in a minute. But again, the warning signs are there. We saw the VIX trade above 20 briefly last week, and we'll see what happens in the coming weeks. So Mike makes the point that we're just seeing rolling corrections. And so, you know, we've seen that from group to group. So it's been rotations. You've seen stocks come out of favor, groups come out of favor. And I think the amount of groups that are down 10% from their all-time highs is kind of telling. And I think to your point about the breadth narrowing is like, again, you have a small amount of stocks that are kind of maintaining or helping the broad markets levitate. And so the more groups, the more leadership that you lose outside of that concentration, the greater the risk is of that correction. I just don't think people that say, oh, you're going to buy the dip. I know there's been some tweets at me saying, oh, yeah, there may be a 10 to 15 percent correction. But when that happens, you're going to buy it. It's amazing when it actually happens, which hasn't happened in quite some time, the way that that mentality changes quickly. And again, I go back to the reason that some of these small cap stocks are down that much is because a lot of these things are overvalued. Their growth momentum type names. And when they start selling off, again, ask yourself, where's the buying point for them? What, because it sold off to 20%? You have to pick a spot to buy it. And when things start trade on fundamentals, I think it just changes the whole kind of story of the market. So you brought up something that's really interesting, Dan, and we talk about it from time to time on Fast Money, the fact that everybody's hoping for, seemingly everybody seems to be calling for, and there are a lot of people, quite frankly, that are hoping for the aforementioned 10 to 15% decline, because in theory, they say, well, I'll be able to buy these stocks cheaper, obviously. But when you subsequently get it, it's much scarier than you ever envisioned, and it's for reason that you never imagined, and people then become paralyzed. I bring this up because you have to have a plan in place before these events happening. I don't think any of us here are saying we're in an imminent 10, 15% move lower. 
Although I do think that's a possibility over the next couple of months, given all the things that we have been talking about here on On The Tape and all the things we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. So just be ready, because when it gets there, Danny and Dan, it's never for the reasons you thought. And I would say this, is that I think Danny has really laid this out over the last few weeks in a way. The one thing that this market, at least valuations, we know that people really don't care when you're in a raging bull market and rates are as low as they have been and the Fed is going to be accommodated for as long as they have and possibly much longer than we might expect. But all of a sudden, this combination of lower growth expectations definitely here. We saw it first in China and then the persistence of some of these supply chain disruptions, which are causing price increases, that's the one thing that'll make every investor in every model reconsider valuations. All the people who've been justifying a market multiple 23, 24 times, that sort of thing. That's the thing that makes it happen. You mentioned a Fed meeting next week. It's interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating that some of the best traders apparently out there are some of these Fed officials. It's remarkable. Maybe they're getting concerned with some of the aforementioned valuations because last week, they pulled the ripcord. Look at Mr. Kaplan and Rosengrens. I mean, I said this. We had Sheila Bear on with Doug Sifu, and we were talking about trading payment for order flow and all those different things, which I am not nearly as exercised about as some people. I'm still going to try to figure out who the aggrieved party is. But what I said to Sheila Bear is, you know what you should really be looking at? It's the fact that these Fed officials have clearly been trading stocks. And oh, by the way, the congressmen and women out there seem to be doing extraordinarily well. And then all of a sudden, we're starting to see one by one All these guys and gals say, you know what, maybe we realize that it doesn't look good. The optics are not particularly good, but I got to tell you something. I'm not saying it's criminal. I'm not saying they did anything wrong, but I'm telling you this has to stop and it has to stop soon, Danny Moses. I mean, I would tell you if I had caught hold of this earlier last week, we would have talked about it last week. I almost, when I read it, I couldn't believe it. So Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren was buying and selling shares of mortgage REITs. These are passive mortgage REITs. This is Annalee, MFA, all these names, right? I don't care if it was $1,000 or $50,000. It was some of the, I guess, 11 stocks he had disclosed trading. That is the equivalent to a doctor running a biotech trial, knowing the results, and then buying and selling his stock accordingly. Why is that? These $120 billion a month that the Fed's been buying, $40 billion of that is directly affecting those companies. There's nothing else that affects them. They can manage their portfolio, hedge it out, but that's the bottom line. And for him to say, oh, you know what? That doesn't look good. As of September 30th, by the way, that's probably where we're going to start tapering. I'm out of everything at this point. Kaplan's trading out of Texas, you know, the millions of dollars. I mean, yes, they're big numbers. The one that bothered me was him trading corporate bond ETFs. Obviously, he would know what the Fed process is. But come on, guys. That, I mean, that's just so obvious. And so now Powell's like, hey, maybe we should do a little more and investigate this and rule some of this out. So same shit, different day. Let me throw it back to you, Danny. You mentioned something that's probably going to take place or coincide with when they start to taper. The optics of a then taper subsequent to what we just talked about would look even worse. I mean, think about people like me on Fast Money and be like, you got to be kidding me. These guys announce that a month later you start this taper, there is something really wrong. So does this, in your opinion, slow down the taper or put it off the table until next year? No, I don't think it does. But I think it does confirm the fact that the Fed is obsessed with the stock market, always uses it as a feedback loop. I just didn't know that they not only were they trading it personally, they were using as a measuring stick. They were actually benefiting from it personally. So I, I don't think it's going to affect any of that at all. 
The other thing we need to talk about, you know, you mentioned Dan, even flow or ever flow, or you said, what do you start this show with? Oh, that's what you were going ever long by Foo Fighters. And I only mentioned that because apparently ever is a big deal because this Evergrande situation in China is now getting to crisis levels, Danny. And I know you've talked about this, so I want to drill down. I would submit the following, and I could be completely off base, but it looks to me as though the Chinese have decided we need to take our medicine and we need to take it now in a draconian way. And they're trying to do an entire reset, which, by the way, we probably should have done five years, if not longer ago. Am I way off base, Danny, or some truth to this? No, I think that, listen, it's in China. So a lot of the U.S. investors haven't paid it much mind. But every day that goes by without a, quote, bailout, I think it gets a little bit scarier. We've seen these property developers have gotten crushed down 30, 40 percent over the last couple of weeks. Some of the largest ones now are, are getting hit here. Just look at these charts on some of these things. But now things are starting to creep in a little bit more, which is separate from the real estate debacle here from these property developers. Things are working their way east a little bit. What happened in Macau? China's looking right now at revamping, I guess, the way that they control money laundering going in and out of Macau, which has always been kind of a story. But you had Sands China down 32.5%, Win Macau down 29%, MGM China down 27%. And each of the U.S. companies that obviously that's a portion of the U.S. companies have obviously owned a large chunk of that, have gotten hit 4 to 6 to 12%, obviously, depending on how important Macau is to those particular companies. So now you're starting to see the China stuff work its way a little bit more into the U.S. name. So back to the Evergrande, I mean, something's going to happen here because there were people protesting. They're literally giving away parking spaces right now in lieu of payment. But there are millions of people here that are at risk here. And we're talking about people that have put money down on apartments and so forth that now don't know if their apartments will ever be built. So this hits a lot of the common people, not necessarily investors in China, as much as it does the institutional investors that trade these stocks. Yeah. So it's interesting if you go to your Google machine and you put in China's ticking debt bomb or ticking bomb China, this is whatever, every year in the last 15, there are just stories about how China's debt bomb is going to go off, that sort of thing. I just did that while you guys were talking. The question is, will there be reverberations? Will we have widening credit spreads in Europe and the US and that sort of thing? And Danny, wouldn't that be kind of the real risk if we were starting to see that? We're seeing some equities here in the US that are slightly related, if you will, have a heck of a time right now. But to Guy's point, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ don't seem to care at the moment. It's interesting that you mentioned some of the stocks here. Let's just talk about one of them specifically, and we can broaden it out if you like. But Las Vegas Sands, which, by the way, it was used to say on the desk, comes out LVS. See what I did there? It's old trader talk. Anyway, it does come out LVS. And that stock at the trough of March, April of 2020, traded basically down about $34, maybe a tad lower, but you see where I'm going here. Stopped subsequently rallied and basically traded up to the levels it broke down from in February of that year. You know where that stock is now? It's right back to COVID level lows, which I find to be fascinating. Now, look, I get it. A lot of it's on the back of what's going on in China. But you have to ask yourself, what are some of these casino stocks seeing that maybe the rest of us are not, or more importantly, the broader market is not? Las Vegas is a big business conference destination, right? And I think the kind of return of COVID here has put the damper on some of that attendance occurring. So it's a double whammy for them. You got a kind of a new cycle here of COVID. That's a direct hit to Las Vegas. And then you have this stuff coming out of China and like their huge exposure in Macau. So I think it's one of these things where, is that where I need to have my money right now? Maybe it's better in the energy stocks with oil doing what it's doing. Maybe it's better in something else. So I think it's an opportunity cost. And now I think the proof is on these companies to start putting up numbers in what might be another downturn for these guys. So 
just get into the intricacies of what's going on here, right? Because there's multiple layers with this Evergrande, right? And so when you brought it up last week, my thought was, oh my goodness, well, because there's so much retail involved in it, because it obviously is related to the property space, which has been a huge source of speculation. It's like massive relative to the equity market and retail participation there, right? So the thought was that the government's going to have to bail these guys out. And so so Guy's point is, well, maybe they go to certain measures here and they finally let some of these things fail. Will that happen? And if they did let them fail, what are some of the knock-on effects? Well, there's no question that we've talked about where this commercial paper could be sitting on all of these real estate developers in China. So forget about Tether actually coming out and saying, we don't have exposure to Evergrande, but they didn't say we don't have exposure to China commercial paper. And who even knows if they're telling the truth at all. But this will be held in some institution somewhere. There will be reverberations. This thing's just too big. When I say these things, I mean, this is $356 billion in debt alone, Evergrande. Let's talk about all the other property developers that are out there. It's sitting on various balance sheets. It's sitting in various global investment accounts. It's probably sitting at various global bank accounts. So this thing does go, and I'm shocked that the global markets haven't reacted to this yet. And we saw very similar things happen, like we compared this to Lehman. A lot of stuff came out and it was visible to a lot of people and nothing happened. So it created this false sense of confidence. So we'll see. But this is definitely going to be one of the potential elephant in the room that's kind of out there. So we'll have to keep an eye on it. Yeah. And I understand it was a much different world and obviously numbers have changed significantly. But just for context, I mean, long-term capital, which by the way, I mean, say what you want. We're within a few days of long-term capital taking down the system as we know it. That was a percentage in terms of numbers of what we're talking about here. Again, Much different world, I get it. But I think we've become so desensitized to the scope of these numbers that we don't think it can be systemic. I think it can be. This pod just took like a big short turn here. And Guy, you still haven't watched the movie, have you? Would that be the big short starring Danny Moses as Danny Moses? No, I have not. You know why? Because the local blockbuster, they're doing renovations in the foyer. All right, this is really funny. So yesterday I was on Josh Brown and Michael Batnick's podcast called The Compound and Friends. And of course, we were talking about on the tape. And of course, we're talking about Guy Dami and Danny Moses. And Josh asks, and Josh is a past guest on this podcast. He starts asking about Danny Moses, like who played him in the movie? Was it the guy from Succession and all this sort of stuff? And Amanda hasn't done this yet. They have like a screen in their studio and they pulled up a screenshot of you guys talking to whoever Gosling's character He's the guy who pitched your group the, the, the idea. Is that correct, Danny? Correct. Greg Lippman was who he portrayed, but he used Jared Vanette was the name he used in the movie, but that was really based upon Lippman. So yes, he played Greg Lippman. If they made a movie about the On The Tape podcast, I would hope like a Ben Affleck would play. I mean, I'd be honored if Ben Affleck played me. Well, it would have to be a prequel guy because that, that would be like the guy who me 30 years ago. Wouldn't it have to be? I think De Niro from The Irishman could play you right now. It's an excellent point. If Bob De Niro would step up to the plate, I would sign up. Danny Moses could produce it. I mean, it would be what I would want. That movie is I'd go to Blockbuster and rent that son of a bitch. But you know what? The next Blockbuster is going to be what's coming out with Gary Gensler. By the way, he's acquitting himself extraordinarily well, in my opinion. He does a great job. I didn't know how to feel about it going in, but I think he's going to be fantastic, Danny. And he's got his arms around a lot of different things. I know you have some thoughts about a myriad of things that he's been talking about up on Capitol Hill. For people that are market purists that want the market to function correctly, that care about the rules and the laws, he addressed some issues which are obvious, yet he went back over them again. It's 
market structure. He cited actually fixed income market structure, the flash crash in 2014. And then I know one of Guy's favorite topics, the repo market kind of crash in the fall of 2019. He talked about how Reg NMS, which needs to be updated, which was established in 2005, it really called out kind of the market makers and payment for order flow guys when they talk about price improvement. Because remember, the price improvement is mostly based on the national best bid and offer. So you compare execution in the dark pools to what's on the consolidated tape. And there's a microsecond, which is a lot in the world of trading difference of the two. So you can show price improvement. He talked about swaps and how they have to be much more transparent going forward because of what happened with Archegos and the changes there. And then he delved into the 10B51 plans, which I think is going to be a huge topic going forward in this market. If, if it ever comes in, we could talk about that in a minute. But there are a lot of things that he addressed. Crypto is the obvious one. You know, he kind of countered Coinbase a little bit, didn't name them by name. But in the interview follow-up on CNBC, he talked about the fact that loans, he believes, are securities as defined in the 1930s by Securities Act. So anyway, a lot of really interesting stuff. He brought it all out there. He's the right guy at the right time. Will any of it matter? I have no idea. But let me just ask you both. I'll start with you, Danny. Who is the aggrieved here with this payment for order flow? I think, in my opinion, I say this on the show. I've written about it. The playing field for the retail investor has never been flatter. What are we talking about here? I mean, when you talk best bid, bet off, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of pennies and milliseconds of time. I mean, are people getting that ripped off where we have to have these types of invest? By the way, I'm no fan of Citadel. I'll say it flat out, but I think we're barking up the wrong tree on this one. I don't agree, Guy. I think it causes potential market structure health issues in the market. When you have that much liquidity going into the dark pools, per se, and staying off of the lit exchanges. All right, so not- stay, hold on. So wait one second. I'm with okay. you on that part of okay. it, but that's not, a, I don't think that's what a lot, like the Sheila Bears of the world has no idea talking about market structure. She's talking about the retail investors effectively, and I'm paraphrasing, getting ripped off. All right, guys. So let me ask you. So zero trading, right? Zero cost trading, right? Okay. Somehow someone's making a lot of money off this. No one's trading for free. These brokers are routing orders to where it is the most economic benefit for them at the expense of what may be in the best interest of the investor. You can't look at it. I'm buying 100 shares of XYZ and I'm paying $17 and half a penny instead of $17 even, right? It's not how you look at it. You look at it as a cumulative effect of the market, of price discovery, of a thousand or a million of those same orders coming in at the same time that creates not just an inflated bid or an inflated offer, transparency. And let me equate it to something else, which I've talked about before. I'll go back to the biotech example. If I told you that I had a cure for some type of disease, that I was the doctor and I gave you that inside information, which would be against the law, and you traded on it, and the stock went from $5 to $15, you would buy it and you'd make 10 bucks. There's not a guarantee that if I make that announcement, the stock goes up. These market makers are 100% guaranteed to make money when they're trading the dark pools because they get to see the orders and they get to see what's on the lit tape and what's in the dark pool and they arbitrage the two together. I have a philosophical problem with that. And the last thing I'll say is we saw the flash crash happen, right? I mean, Michael Lewis wrote his next book on it, Flash Boys, and we should get Ronan Ryan and Brad Katsuyama who started IEX on it. Ginsler obviously is talking to them or talking to people like them to try to understand these markets. It's just not a fair market right now and it can create you see these wild moves, right? We've seen a couple of days here, down 500 points in the Dow, down 80 points in the S&P, stuff like that. If we have a sustained sell-off, people will look for someone to blame, and I believe it will potentially be within that underbelly of market structure. So sorry to rant, but I just think it makes the market a little bit unhealthy. It's a great rant. No, that's fair enough.
But you know what, Guy? To your point, though, you started the conversation like you're not sure who's aggrieved. I mean, listen, this was the same thing in crypto, right? In the last frenzy that we had in 2017, the fees were outrageous. The bid ask was outrageous. But people weren't asking any questions because they only went up. It wasn't until they started crashing where the fees and the spreads were an issue and where they were routed to. So I agree. I think it makes sense to pay attention to this right now. I just think it will take a bear market for it really to kind of uh, make some significant changes one way or another. Dan, you're 100% right. All the thing that Ginsler's talking about will only matter if there's a sustained sell-off in the market and people were looking for someone to blame. And he has laid the groundwork in his testimony to encounter each of those various areas of the market. And I think that was my point about Gensler's testimony to start with. You know, Danny always gets to rot. I want to rot for a second. I want to rip off the tape. Yes! Let's welcome... Dan Nathan, front stage on the rot. Let's go, Dan. All right. So I don't know if you guys caught this this week, but the Wall Street Journal is running this kind of investigative series on Facebook. And each day this week so far, they put out what I think are really powerful pieces. The first one says, Facebook says its rules apply to all. Company documents reveal a secret elite that's exempt. The next day, on Tuesday, Facebook knows Instagram is toxic for many teen girls. Company documents show. Then the next day, Facebook tried to make its platform a healthier place. It got angrier instead. And then today, Facebook employees flag drug cartels and human traffickers. The company's response is weak. Documents show. I can't wait to see what comes out on Friday. I'm sure they're saving the best for last. And Guy has said this on many occasions that he thinks this is going to be the poster child for ESG investing at some point. But right now, this company has been basically profiting off of fear and greed and hate and every other thing that you can think of that is really kind of destroying the fabric of our society here. And it's a trillion dollar market cap. If you look at Wall Street analysts, there's 46 buy ratings, nine holds and three sells. I feel sorry for those lonely people down there. And when you think about what's going on here, $120 billion ad revenue behemoth and the pie keeps getting bigger and they're going to keep snapping it up. It's just Google and them. And if you think about their competitors on the digital ad market, it's Amazon, it's Snap, it's Twitter and it's Pinterest. And they're nobody even near where these guys are. There's nowhere even considering the growth. And so when you think about ESG, though, it took a while for investors to turn on oil. You saw that Harvard's endowment fund is going to stop investing finally, I think, in fossil fuel related equities. But Kind of interesting to think. When you look at Exxon, there's only nine analysts that, that rated a buy. There's 20 a hold, one sell. Philip Morris, nine buys, 10 holes. I know this is not a trade, but when you look at this and what we're reading, and if you have kids and you see what's going on with them with the Instagram, and if you are an adult and you know how you're addicted to your phone and the apps that are on it, as sooner or later, this is going to become a really huge issue. Thoughts, gentlemen? The Beatles sang about this, all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Well, when it comes to Facebook analysts, those lonely people that you mentioned, they come from a place of integrity, Dan Nathan. That's where they come from. Because I got to tell you something. I've said this a hundred times on CNBC's Fast Money, on the tape, all other places, that I hate everything about Facebook. I find the platform reprehensible on a myriad of different levels. The only thing I like is the stock. What I also have said is the existential risk to Facebook is ESG investing. And if they fall into the purview, which they're going to do, Katie bar the door. I don't know who she is. I don't know what door she's barring, but you better watch out, folks, because it's going to get really messy. Danny, finish up. 
Wow, that's a double rant. I don't know. I just think people will find an excuse to try to own it. It's too big portion of the market to kind of go by the wayside. And who knows, Facebook will counteract it with some, oh, we're working on a new division that we have. We're reaching out to teens. I don't know. I don't want to make a venture on that. But Dan, I think your point was, if I'm not mistaken, was that you think the stock is at risk, given the fact that the pressure is mounting, because you made a comment that you feel sorry for the people that have the sell rating because of what it's looked like in the past. But it's really hard, obviously, to have a sell on a name like this that's growing the way it is, that has the margins that it does, that has the monopoly the way it does. My point is, is like, yes, you can't short this stock on the Wall Street Journal's five-part investigative series, but it might be a really important kind of footnote into how this all goes. And obviously, we had 2016 election, we had the 2020 election. These guys, they've been trotted in front of Congress on numerous occasions. They get out unscathed all the the time. I'm not sure breaking up this company is the answer either. The problem is, is that it's just really pervasive, right? Their products. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, the people don't seem to care too much. They didn't really seem to care about their privacy. They didn't seem to care about being manipulated by misinformation. You think at what's gone on during COVID and, and with the vaccines that continues to go on here, Something's got to give at some point. And I guess my point is, is like people like us were probably ranting about Exxon or Philip Morris or something like that. And 10, 15, 20 years ago, it took a long time. It was really slow. I give the Wall Street Journal a lot of credit. I hope they stick with it. Coming up, big developments in Washington, D.C. as we speak. And we got the right guy to break it down. The wonderful the studly Brady Cobb is going to join us in a minute. Later, we're going to be going off the tape with NFL star Super Bowl winning Indomitian Sioux of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Stick around. Hey, everyone. It's Dan here. If you like On the Tape, you'll love Trading Spaces. Guy and I do it every Monday and Wednesday live on Twitter Spaces. We break down the biggest market-moving headlines of the day and take your questions. We're also joined by some pretty cool guests, so check it out. All you have to do is follow at underscore Trading Spaces on Twitter and sign up for our email reminders at riskreversal.com. That's every Monday and Wednesday live at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitter. Brought to you by CME Group. As I mentioned, straight from Washington, D.C., from the driver's seat of his car, the great Brady Cobb founder and former CEO of Bluma Wellness. He's an attorney and lobbyist fighting for the legalization of marijuana. Brady, great to have you back on the tape here, brother. Thanks for having me. Good to see everybody but Danny. Well, no comment on that. Danny, get into it, brother. Yeah, well, he's been talking to Washington, D.C. I believe he's enjoying his life down in South Florida at the moment, but I'll let him talk. And let me just set the stage for what Brady's going to talk about. So there's an annual bill. It's called the National Defense Authorization Act. Every year it gets reauthorized. Trump tried to block it last year. He vetoed it because he didn't have enough money for the border wall, but it passed anyway by unanimous in the Senate and the House. It's run by the Senate Armed Services Committee and the House Armed Services Committee, and it's been around since 1961. It's the one thing that always gets done. And every year, people attach various things to it because it's a slam dunk. And if you can get legislation attached to it, it's a slam dunk that it's going to go through. So with that setting the stage, Brady, I think we talked last week on this podcast. One of the reasons cannabis stocks have been hit recently, and we've seen gains in the last couple of days, and this is probably why, was that the movement in Washington has stopped. And as it relates to the SAFE Act and everything, it lost its momentum. So I now turn it over to you to set the stage. Tell us what is going on within the SAFE Act and what it's being attached to. Go ahead. Yeah, no problem. So great synopsis. And where we kind of are right now, we've been in this purgatory there was a great run-up in the cannabis sector post-election, post-inauguration. 
Democrats sweep control of all three chambers. Here we go. And then oftentimes, doesn't matter the party, when one party controls all three sides or all three branches of government, it generally, when you have no one to shoot at, you start shooting at each other. And cannabis policy fell within that in this latest cycle. So there was a lot of talk. Everyone had this big run up. Schumer was tweeting every couple of days or someone on his staff likely was tweeting every couple of days. And then poof, nothing. And even though the companies themselves, the underlying cannabis companies were performing better and better quarter over quarter, in spite of the federal law overhang, we had this big pullback. And the legislation stagnated. Schumer released his Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act. Great, very aspirational piece of legislation, but replete with fundamental flaws that need to be fixed to make it actually something that can be implemented. Comment period just ended. And it's been weird. I've really felt like, and I've been talking to my team up there, and we've been doing a lot of calls with staff because the members have been gone until earlier this week. And it just, everyone's had this feeling like something was going to come, something was going to happen. It just was too quiet. And there's just, the Democratic Party has really tethered themselves to cannabis reform. It's been a key issue that leadership has talked about, everybody but Biden. You know, Biden's obviously not a huge supporter, but I think politically he's got to let it happen. Then flash forward to Wednesday afternoon at around 5.30 as I'm getting ready to coach my son's baseball practice and my phone explodes. And it was that moment we were all kind of wondering what was going to happen. It's Safe Banking Act, even though it passed the House with 105 Republican votes in support earlier this year, Schumer, Booker, and Wyden largely set up a block on it, gave it to Heisman because they were more interested in getting the comprehensive reform bill through than just helping cannabis banking, which from a policy perspective, I couldn't agree with them more. But from an actual getting something done in D.C. perspective, it almost felt like stealing defeat from the jaws of victory. You have a bill that has bipartisan support. It's a stepping stone. As everybody knows that's done anything in D.C., it's a game of incrementalism, inch by inch. Take the win, keep moving. So we've always anticipated, and I put it out there in like January on a podcast with Todd Harrison and Jeff Schultz, that I thought they would release their bill and then they would double back and put SAFE into a must-pass so they'd had some cover fire. Well, here we are with the National Defense Authorization Act. It got added as a proposed amendment on Wednesday. So as of Wednesday, it's teed up. We're going to know by the September 20th whether it gets included. It has to go through the Rules Committee to make sure it's in order. There's hundreds of amendments that get added on. Not all of them end up making it. At the end of the day, the consensus that I'm hearing is that it will make it. We won't know until the actual vote happens. But Representative Perlmutter, who is a sponsor of the amendment, is someone that is on the Rules Committee, and it's anticipated that it will make it. The real setup is going to be in the Senate. What's going to happen in the Senate? Because there is strong bipartisan support for SAFE in the Senate. We've had some great conversations over the last couple of weeks with Republicans over there. And there is support for it. It's just we got to figure out what is the Democratic Party going to do? Is Schumer truly going to stand in the way of something again to try to continue to push his bill? I don't think politically necessarily that would be the best decision, but he's the majority leader of the U.S. Senate. And I'm a private citizen down here sweating in Florida. But to me, politically, it would make a lot more sense to let the bill progress. But what SAFE would ultimately do is it's going to allow banking, it's going to allow these companies, and it's going to allow MSOs, single state operators, all the way down to single dispensary owners, the ability to work with U.S. depository institutions. They'll start the wheels in motion for FinCEN to update their AML and their FinCEN guidance and marijuana-related business guidance. And in my mind, it also opens the window in that regulatory process to get enough cover fire into regulation updates to permit some of these U.S. exchanges to start looking at uplistings. That's a bit of a stretch, and I know it's a bit of a stretch, but I like rulemaking as a way to do it as opposed to trying to slip it into legislation. Because right now, the only support we have on a bipartisan basis is for SAFE as it's drafted. 
So the next steps for the bill is it's going to get ruled to be in order, hopefully, and end up as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act. As Danny noted, that's a bill that's been passed every year for the last 60 years. I'm knocking on wood here. And then it will go over to the Senate in October, assuming it gets tacked on in the House and makes it through the amendment process. And our real work is going to be over in the Senate. we got to take a pulse of the Armed Services Committee and then take a pulse of leadership to make sure that they are on side with it. But it really, if everyone wants my actual opinion, it feels very much like something that has a shot, no guarantees, and it's a long shot, but it has a shot because it's a way for the bill to get through without Schumer and the more progressives that want to see comprehensive reform having to do it as a standalone purpose. It gives them the cover fire to say, it's in a must-pass bill, we're just going to do it, and we're going to keep fighting for our bill. They don't have to go out on a limb to pass something that they don't think is enough. For Republicans, it's something they already support. It's the first step towards proper taxation of the space. It's the first step for oversight of the actual finances of the space where the money will be in banks. So I think for them, it's a win as well. So that's kind of how we see it. And we're going to be closely monitoring it over the next five to six days to make sure that it actually makes it through the amendment process in the House. That's great. And we know that Wall Street's just looking for an excuse to provide banking. They may be quiet right now, but the minute that something like this passes, you'll see launching research coverage, providing loans, all kinds of things, because it's been basically several private companies providing all liquidity, some public companies that are listed already on NASDAQ and NYSE that, quote, don't touch the plant, but some of these REITs that are out there that are benefiting from this, and cost of capital is still high. But we've seen these stocks now rally. I mean, they've gotten really hit here, but they're up like 10% in the last couple of days off these lows. So at least it's good to see there's some life, and it proves that it is the legislative aspect of it that I think can get that going against it. So, Danny, where do you go with this? Because I'm just looking at two of the bigger names, Tilray, Canopy Growth. Tilray, while it's down dramatically from its highs early in the year, is still up on the year. Canopy's down, I think, like 45%, but again, down dramatically from its highs. How do you play this here? And are these stocks getting a bit washed out no matter what happens next week? You just touched on one of the biggest problems about understanding of cannabis stocks. I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying you just mentioned the Canadian name. These Canadian names have been trading on the exchanges for some time. It's the reason that they've traded at a premium. But I think it's a misnomer of how the U.S. investors can legally express their trades. When I say legally, some of the broker dealers won't let them trade in the U.S. MSOs because they're pink sheets or they trade on the junior exchanges up in Canada. But these have been used kind of as the sentiment. But that's the wrong way to play it. And yes, I will say that if the U.S. does legalize or deschedule cannabis, you will see a lot of M&A occur from the Canadian names, which won't be the worst place to be because they will go and acquire some of these companies because they do have the balance sheet, they do have equity to, to go and do that. But you just summed it up right there. And I think that tells us why there's still so much room here for these stocks to go. How do I play it? I've said it before. The U.S. multi-state operators, the Crescos, the Green Thumbs, the True Leaves, the big names that are out there that are in 15, 20 states that have taken the time to build up this footprint. The one thing that's happened here, and I mentioned it, the lag between kind of where fundamentals meet stock price has been every state, a lot of states have been going through the motions and approving some type of cannabis program within the state. Some are going adult use, some are going medical. The problem is you have a huge black market of illicit drug sales that have been occurring in every market. Let's take New York, for example. New York decriminalizes already as part of the bill, but yet there's a lag from the time they have to set up the adult use program, right? That lag time, I think, creates this bump where if you're a drug dealer, so to speak, you know you're not going to go to jail anymore because no one's coming after you. And there's a lot of black market drugs that are out there. So there's a lot that goes into this, Dan. But bottom line is these U.S. multi-state operators will be the biggest beneficiary. And I would not own, unless I wouldn't short the Canadian names, but I would not own them because that's not a pure play. 
Brady, thanks for coming on with the update. We'd love to have you back after September 20th. We find out if this actually worked its way into this authorization bill and see what it's going to look like from there. And when we come back, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are Donna Consumer. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Indomitian Sue is an engineer, entrepreneur, investor, all-pro defensive lineman, and Super Bowl champion. You may know him from his work on the field with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but off the field, he is building an investment empire, striving to inspire the next generation of young athletes and unexpected investors to create generational wealth. He is a partner at HMS Development, a company focused on mixed-use development projects and a managing partner of House of Spears Management, an investment portfolio including Ember Technologies, Seven Peaks Ventures, and Andreessen Horowitz Cultural Leadership Fund. Sue is an avid investor in the hospitality sector, founding the General's Restaurant Group and partnering with several high-profile groups and individuals all over the country. He serves on the board of Ballantine Strong and is an advisor of two SPACs, Fast and Fast 2. And if that's not enough for you, he also attended the University of Nebraska, where he became one of the most decorated Husker players in college football history. Indomitian, welcome to On the Tape. I got to tell you, I am not easily starstruck, but I am right now with us today, the great, and I mean great, and future Hall of Famer, if I may say so, Indomitian Sue. Indomitian, thanks for joining us On the Tape. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Adonica, we got introduced by my very good friend, Joe Marchese, and you are an investor in human ventures with the fabulous Heather Hartnett, who I saw last night. They both said to say hi. How did you get involved in investing in private markets? And did that come before you even took a look at the public markets? No. So actually, I was learning both of them at the same time. And it was exciting to be able to, one, get connected with Joe and Heather and Jay Brown through the Rock Nation relationship. He's one of my big mentors and Joe's become a big proponent of helping me get into the space. And so as I've learned not only the public markets, but also the private markets, Human Ventures and Heather and Joe have been a, a huge educator for myself. So public markets is usually kind of that gateway drug to all different sorts of investing. Was it a certain period in the markets or was it a certain sector in the stock market that really kind of caught your interest and kind of when did that happen? Truthfully, was around real estate. So I've been around real estate since I was a little kid. My dad had apartments. My mother had apartments. But as I got older, I never wanted to kind of be in and around residential. I was always looking more towards the commercial side of things, multifamily, because when I saw the heartache my parents were going through dealing with Section 8 tenants and some different things like that, it pushed me away from that. But as I started to learn the public markets and had a close friend named Gary Schiffman who runs Sun Communities, which is publicly traded REIT that allowed me to see different ways to get into the real estate market. And so that's how I kind of first got my toes dipped into it. And then from there, it's just kind of expanded. 
Life's a funny thing. You know, you make choices that are going to affect the rest of your life. Sometimes you don't even realize it at the time. My sense is in high school, you were probably recruited by dozens, if not 50 or more colleges, but you chose to go to the University of Nebraska, a storied program, by the way, as you know. But one of the things that happened there is you were able to meet Nebraska resident Warren Buffett. Can you speak to the impact that had on your life? Yeah, I was very, very fortunate to, like you said, receive a lot of scholarships as a young kid coming out of Portland, Oregon, and decided amongst all those five visits that I took and not wanting to choose to stay home and go to Oregon State, I decided to go to Nebraska. I think that was one of the best decisions of my career to this date, even though I've made a lot of other decisions since then. And throughout that time there, not only being able to meet Warren Buffett and all the different people in and around that program that helped me get to where I'm at right now, it's been a great situation to be able to have that as a mentor of mine, have Mr. Buffett a close friend as well and somebody I can bounce things off of. And so as I continue to grow and expand and having these strong relationships, as I continue to learn the markets, understand cryptocurrency and all these different pieces in between, it's a huge thing for me to have people that I can rely on, especially as I'm still playing, because I, I don't have all the time in the world because uh, I got to split it between sports and business as well. That's right out of the book, Outliers, it feels like, that you happen to land there next to Buffett. That's really cool. So when making these investment decisions, both public and private, but mostly private, I would say, I'm sure your wife, Katya, is very involved in that process. How do you measure, because you give so much back to society, you do so many things on so many levels, which we could talk about. How do you weigh between kind of the making money, personally making money for the foundation and doing right? I'm not saying ESG per se, but how do you weigh those things when you're looking at investment opportunity? See, the funny thing is, is I think they go hand in hand. And when you truthfully understand when and you're in the business, especially when it comes to real estate or even from a standpoint of private companies, I think you can do both at the same time. So from a real estate perspective, I can build a building. I can help a young African-American woman or somebody of color that had, may be disadvantaged and bring them into my building and give them delayed rents. So that allows them to get their business up and going and start a new location or something of that nature. Or if I'm in a private company and let's just say it's Ember Technologies that I'm a part of and I want to create something that's super interesting, I can bring them into that company and say, hey, let's use this back office. Let's use these experts and these engineers to help create your next product. And that's kind of that give and take because it's really just kind of spreading the knowledge and the wealth across the board to be able to do both. And those companies are going to continue to grow. My real estate is going to continue to grow in value. People know that's generational wealth and usually how one of the best ways to do that. And then Ember is a well-established company and they know what they're doing. And they can take that extra time to be able to help somebody who's a, a young entrepreneur. So you just talked a little bit about kind of balancing your time between your day job, which is football. And, you know, I look at your Twitter and you don't tweet like you're an all-star NFL Super Bowl champion. You tweet like you thread like the crypto guys and like the VC guys and that sort of thing. You've already mentioned a little bit about mentorship. You just named a few of them. It seems like you're trying to do the same right now. You're kind of taking in the access that you have and doing a little giving back and your threads are, are really phenomenal. And again, it doesn't sound like somebody who's in the NFL. It sounds like you are an active market participant. Yeah, there's no question. I definitely want to not only take the knowledge that I've gotten and spread it to the other young men and women that I come encounter, whether it's my teammates, our friends and family that I grew up. I don't want to keep that knowledge for myself. I want to have success, but I also want to be able to help somebody else have success. Uh, and then when it comes to Twitter, like it's no different than taking the time to study. 
for football or study when I want to go into a business or whatever it may be. I carve out time in my days uh, throughout the week to put these threads together with my team, and then we go out there and execute. So I think it's also a way to be able to get great knowledge. And Twitter is a very powerful tool. I've met, I've met a lot of great people on it, and it's something that is exciting for me to continue to do and grow. It's fascinating. History is important. You need to learn history in high school and in elementary school and mathematics and English and all those different things. But one thing that's not taught nearly enough, if at all, is financial literacy. And I know that's become a huge passion of yours. Can you speak to it and some of the things you're doing specifically with Stash 101? Yeah, financial literacy to me is one of the most fundamental things that kids and our youth need to learn. As I grew up in Portland, Oregon, if it wasn't for my mother and my father, primarily my mother, that taught me how to, one, explain to me what a credit card was and say, hey, you've got a car now, you're driving, you're going to have to get gas, you're going to have to do different things or use this for an emergency. But if you go over those $100 that I give you for the month, you are in big trouble. And that's no different than a bank telling you if you go over this limit, you're going to be paying some high fees that's going to create a lot of problems for you. So for me, if I can start to create programs like we did with Stash 101 and partnered with Portland Public Schools in the trajectory programs, we can start to eliminate those mistakes and, and create opportunity for youth to not get into debt problems and to have issues when they're going into not only college, but young life when they come out into the real world and they have to understand what those different pieces are so they can go and rent a car or even lease a car, let alone buy a car when they're afforded those opportunities. So those are middle school kids, I believe, that you're helping with Stash 101. Yes, sir. You've already donated a tremendous amount to Nebraska for engineering students, I believe, which you give an annual scholarship to. How do you help your fellow athletes that you're in the locker room with, that you know, you see the rookies come in, they got the contract, you're like, listen to me, don't blow out on this, don't do that. What advice do you give those guys in the locker room? So I'm a little more careful when it comes to my teammates and, and not being super aggressive when it comes to them. And, and really just more so, I've been fortunate enough guys that are very comfortable enough to come out to me and ask me questions and things of that nature. So I just really give them my experiences and my thought process of, of what they should do and people they should connect with and things they should really think about. And really the first thing is all about saving. Create a nest egg and then find a portion of your portfolio that you want to learn about. Like, again, real estate, you want to get into the markets, or even if you have a passion, like you look at a guy like Devin White, who has a passion of horses and wants his own ranch. So put some money away. You've got a big check at the early date, but then go find one of your passions and understand that. So horses is one of his passions, having a ranch. Well, that's a form of real estate. There's tax benefits. There's all these different things that you can do with that. Understand how you can Enjoy your passion, but at the same time, one, make it a business and that you can have a lot of fun with it. And it can be something that comes to, to great fruition for yourself. So it's interesting that you're spending some time and a lot of considerable resources on financial literacy. And, you know, Guy and Danny and myself and Guy and I specifically on CNBC and, and some of the other programs that we do, we're talking about financial markets literacy, right? You can't, if you don't have financial literacy, then you can't even think about investing, right? If you have debt and student debt and then credit card debt, that sort of thing. So I think it's really interesting. It's a great stepping stone, but here's the thing. So all these guys in the NFL or any pro sport, they come in 
into this. They got all this money now for the first time in their lives, right? And just for us, we've spent a lot of time just kind of trying to dissect the mindset of this investor over the last couple of years. And it really is, you mentioned crypto before, it's this Robin Hood phenomenon, Reddit. Everybody thinks that they have all the keys of the kingdom. Are guys in the NFL in the locker room, are they talking about stocks? Are they talking about cryptos? Are they actively doing this? Again, this is not about investing. This is more like the gamification of the trading aspect of it. Yeah, there's no question that there's that gamification and really guys are just talking about in the locker room because it's on Reddit. But even then, more so you have other groups where you have the hustle or morning brew where people are talking about different things and they're reading those articles and seeing all these different pieces and saying, hey, I want to get involved in it. So it's a hot topic in the locker room. But the thing is, you want them to be safe and be smart and really start with small allocations when they go into these different things and really wanting to get involved versus just saying, oh, I see they're doing this. So let me jump on the wave and then you're really most likely going to be late. Once everybody's talking about it, it's usually a little little too late before you get in there. It's fascinating. I think the NFL has come a long way in terms of just financial education. I know that for a fact. I don't know if you've ever met Dave Zott, but he works for the Jet organization and the Jets are trying to do a good job with that. Do you think, in your opinion, is it up to the NFL or is it up to the individual teams or quite frankly, Is it up to the players to sort of get up to speed with all the stuff we've been talking about? Truthfully, I think it's a full combination of all of it, not only from the league perspective, the NFLPA perspective, but then as you get down into the weeds and having these pro player directors on each and every team of ours, I've seen some of the best player directors that have gone above and beyond for their athletes, and I've seen others that choose to kind of just do the basics of saying, hey, here's how you get your credit score, and that's it. And so I think not only from those people taking their approach and saying, hey, we're going to give you all the tools, you also as players have to be interested in it. Because if you don't take ownership of it, it's me beating a dead horse. I can only take you to the water. I can't force you to drink it. So now it's not just pro athletes, right? So now I know this came after your time in college, but this name image likeness payments that can now occur for college kids, that's going to, I mean, I think that's good and bad, right? I think it's great that colleges shouldn't get all the benefits of the work that's done on the field and all the sales that come with it. But at the same time, these kids now have to learn even sooner. So now how do you get to those kids soon for making a mistake? And I know you can't talk to all of them, but it seems like that is the next level here because I can see a lot of kids getting taken advantage of signing deals that they shouldn't have done exclusive type thing. So who do you think is in, in there trying to help them out at that point? I mean, truthfully, from my understanding of very little knowledge, it's a lot of agents that are going to be in that position to be the ones that step in and help. And hopefully there's all quality people that are out there that want to have the best interest for those kids. But it's definitely scary times for those collegiate athletes that are going into these different deals that really don't even know how to look at a basic contract and say, yes, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. And these are my obligations, so forth and so on. And I think that's one thing that I dislike about, I believe it's called the NIL. And really, I would want the ownership and onus being on the schools and saying, hey, we're going to help you through these pieces. We have a compliance department that can walk you through these different pieces. And rather than the kids getting the money right then and there, I would rather them have the money waiting for them when they leave college. So, hey, we're going to put it in an IRA or whatever it is for you. We'll set this aside and you can do all these different pieces. You can create your name, create your brand, but you won't be able to touch this money until you're getting ready to leave college. And a lot of those kids would be, that would be a great nest egg for them to start off their real world life. Or if you're fortunate enough to go pro, great. You can give it to the family. You can pay off debt. You can do all these different things because you know you're coming into some real money or whatever it may be. 
Dan mentioned your Twitter account, and I'm, I've been on Twitter since 2009, and I'm learning. Apparently, there's something you call like a pinned or a thumbtack tweet or something. You pinned one. I want to read it, and I want you to speak to this. I'm reading now. Yeah. It's been over a decade since I kicked off my career. I've worked with, invested in, and mentored some of the most elite people on the planet. And you know what I've noticed? From Tom Brady to Warren Buffett, they all have five things in common. If you're curious, I'm curious, my man. Tell me what they are. <laughs> Five things. I don't have them all off the top of my head. That's all right. Just rattle off a couple because I think you're right. There are common threads that people wouldn't necessarily think about. Yeah, I think it's focusing, understanding that you need to be on top of your stuff. Dedication is a big thing as you move forward and, and you have that focus and you're able to work through different pieces and understand those things. It's then following through, being focused on that follow through as well. And then as you continue to grow and, and understanding people around you. How are people can help you? Because as an individual and being whether that's a CEO of the company, you want to have people that are your right hands, the people that are running your different companies from VPs that can help you grow and push you and not afraid to talk to you, even though you may be the leader. And that's one thing that I learned from Mr. Buffett is you got to have great people. I want to have somebody who has the ability to say, hey, I would do this job for free. In addition to that, it's I think patience is a huge thing. As you go and understand where you want to be, it's going to take a period of time. I talk about real estate all the time. Real estate is one of those things. It's a patient game. And you may be going through a process of a development piece where it's going to take two to three years for that piece to come to go through not only entitlements and pre-development pieces and then actually getting it done. And then you have your ramp up period, especially when it goes to multifamily, if you're not pre-leased and lucky enough to have something in the commercial space ready to go. And then let alone you have to deal with the bank's if you're smart. So there's a lot of different pieces that, that I've learned throughout my life and, and not only being around Tom and being around Mr. Buffett and amongst all my other close friends and mentors. Uh, those are some of the things that I think are very key. So were these skills or characteristics that you really learned in football and they're just kind of translating to this other thing in life? It seems like this is really where you're going with your life post football. Yeah, for sure. It's a big focus of me post-football. But I think if you look at it from a perspective, us as athletes, we're a CEO of our bodies, our minds, and where we want to be as a professional. No different than a CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, or Jeff Bezos of Amazon, all these different people that have had all this success. And so now you got to build these teams around you. And I can take lessons from not only on the athletic side of things, but also from the learnings of CEOs and people that are running companies to be able to get to my ultimate successes. So when you think about the NFL as a business and as a product that's put out in the field, as an investor, you obviously play in it. But as an investor, do you have dreams one day of owning a team? What do you think about that business in general? And do you think that players have yet to get kind of a fair shake at this and they should have a bigger piece of the pie? How, how do you think about that? I would love to look at an ownership stake when it comes to a professional team. If there was an opportunity, which I've seen very few and far between, let alone any at any point in time, I would want to run it a lot different than how they're run right now. I think there needs to be a lot more cross-pollination when it comes to other sports and being able to steal things from the great way that performance directors and athletics work when it comes to professional soccer overseas. I'd love to take some notes from over there. When it comes to basketball and how they travel and how they do different things, I think I'd like to steal pieces from there. And then I think just in general, the power engine that NFL has, the one thing that I've been able to see is their reach across the world is great. So you talk about sports and business being hand in hand, you can do a lot of great things being able to be a team owner 
uh, in the space. So I think it'd be great from a business perspective as well. Let's talk about football real quick. So I think everybody, when they think of defensive lines in the history of the NFL, the purple people eaters, Alan Page, Carl Eller, Jim Marshall, and then Gary Larson is the one that nobody gets, but I know. And the defensive ends, those are the guys that make the big bucks and stuff. They get on game day and ESPN highlight reels. But the D tackles clearly are doing all the work. You played with Aaron Donald, who is probably not the best defensive player in the world. He might be the best player in the league for the last three or four years. Talk to me about that. That must have been an unbelievable experience to line up next to him. Yeah, no, he's definitely a great talent in Aaron Donald and somebody that I definitely respect. I gained a lot more respect for him just seeing how he works and being in and around the locker room with him. So there's no question that he has great God-given talent, but at the same time, he puts in a lot of work in the meeting rooms, but also in the weight room. But that team that I was a part of in 2018 was very, very special. And that's why I think one of the reasons why we got to the Super Bowl, just because there was an innate group of guys that were not only young, but also older veterans like myself and Aqib Tlaib that were able to co-mingle and really grow strong relationships with guys like Aaron Donald and Marcus Peters and all the other guys from Jared Goff and Todd Gurley on the offensive side of the ball. And I think that's one of the great pieces I enjoyed about that team. But I think I'm in a better place now, and I think we have a real opportunity to go and take care of business and, and earn another ring. There's a lot of sports where you'll sit back and say, oh, coaching's not as important here or isn't there. With the talent in the NFL, it feels like the coach's job is to kind of be the CEO and create that camaraderie and bring everybody together and really take the pulse of the players, know when to push certain ones, know when to not. I know Bruce Arians has has an incredible reputation of being a, quote, player's coach, I think. How important is that? And can you just talk about Tom Brady's work ethic also at the same time? Because it's really amazing what he does week in, week out, and how prepared he is. I mean, he's the type of person that could do could have done anything in his life, right? He happened to choose football to be successful. Love to get your thoughts on those two subjects. Yeah, Bruce is a great guy. And I've always believed that a true head coach in the NFL has to have a psychology degree of some sort, just because they have to understand all the different personalities that they're coming across the board. Also being able to manage coaches and understand how they need to look at different pieces and what you're dealing with. I think Coach Aarons is Everybody sees it as a true player's coach. Uh, I think that's probably one of the easiest ways to describe it. But he's also a guy that's not afraid to push you and challenge you and at the same time give you a hug at the end of the day if that's what you need to get to where we need to be as a team. And I think that also translates to understanding who your veterans are on the team. And when you have a Tom Brady, uh, myself, Levante, David type guys, you empower them and say, hey, this is also your team. I'm not just the head coach. You're the head coach when it comes to the offense, running the defense, and you take leadership because I can trust you with that. And I can trust that you're going to do everything in your power to not only help the young guys in their ways and be the mentor that they may need. And that's where I see Tom as being a great guy from a perspective of, one, he touches everybody in the locker room, which some stars don't know how to do that. That's a very great trait that he has. In addition, he's a tireless worker. You see him each and every single day come in here, handle his business, help other guys grow and get better as they want to aspire. And he also is in a position to where he can help them get that. You see that with AB and their relationship. You see that obviously with Gronk and their relationship, let alone he's doing that with new guys. You see Scotty Miller, a young guy who's in his third year, having an amazing year last year. And I think the sky's the limit for him when he comes in this year. So tell us a little bit about that experience last year, you just mentioned the young guys coming in, really talented. But when you look at that veteran talent, yourself, Brady, Gronk, 
what did it mean after being in the league for 10 years to, to win a Super Bowl? And does it make you just want to stick around and win a whole bunch more? Yeah, definitely have the energy and the want to to continue to play at a high level and be a major cog in the wheel to help us get some more successes at winning championships. And really, we're a very, very talented team. And it just comes down to us not beating ourselves. And if we play on a high efficient way of not only on the offensive side of the ball, our special teams did an amazing job this last game and want them to remain consistent from that standpoint. And then us as a defense, we need to find our mojo like we did at the end of the year where we're getting a bunch of turnovers and being able to shut people down. And I think one exciting thing is we still found a way to win. And as we continue to do that and we tighten up the ship, it's going to be very, very fun at the end of the year. People will remember you for what you did on the football field at Nebraska and your four, I think it's four NFL teams now, but your legacy will be defined by the Sioux Family Foundation. Can you speak to that, the importance of that? Yeah, the importance of that and really the Sioux Family Foundation is purely just paying it forward. There's no way I am where I'm at right now without having the mentors, the friends and families, and just the people in my life that have given me the opportunities to get to where I'm at right now. So I've always wanted to, one, my mom was a teacher, so education is a huge aspect of my life and being able to teach others. Health and wellness, I'm an athlete, love being a part of activities and moving and doing all this different stuff, being a part of Nike and just kind of all their campaigns. And the last piece, my wife is one amazing woman. She has a lot of empowerment from a standpoint of pushing me, pushing our kids, pushing our family, and really I wouldn't be where I'm at without my wife. And that's one thing I've said a long time ago. And I said this after we won the Super Bowl. I haven't been a champion and I haven't been winning some elite games. Not only when we went together, we were first moved in together in 2018 to where we're at last year in 2020 to win a Super Bowl championship, let alone all the other stuff off the field without having a strong woman on my side. All the other stuff, you mean twin boys, infant twin boys. Congrats on <laughs> yeah. that. That's amazing. I, you know, I am a twin, and I will tell you, I think Katya has it easy right now for a moment relative to my mom, who had two sets of twins, just, you know, under the age of three. So maybe you guys can work for that in the next year or so. Here's the thing. Thanks to Joe and Heather for the intro. Just so you know, as an LP in Human Ventures, Human has invested in the parent company of On The Tape, which is Risk Reversal Media. So we are connected in many ways. And the last thing I'll just tell you is that every guest who comes on, on the tape, we usually send them a bottle of Comos tequila as a thank you, which Joe is obviously an investor in, in their major hype man. But it sounds like you don't need that bottle sent to you because you are already an investor in Comos. You are already an investor in Superbird. Tell us a little bit how you got into high-end tequila real quickly. Tequila is one of those great things I enjoy in my free time. And my wife is actually, now that she's not pregnant, is, is a big enjoyer of it as well. She's been a huge brand ambassador for them, especially on the Superbird side of things. She's recently sent out a bunch of packets to not only my teammates here, but also some other friends and family around the league. So it's exciting to, one, just be a part of it and, and, and reap the benefits of my wife being a brand ambassador and, and bringing in some, uh, some good quality stuff to the house. Well, you were the second overall pick in the 2010 draft. And I get the Sam Bradford thing. He probably deserved to be there. But as a defensive tackle to go number two, you know how special that is. And on behalf of Danny and Dan, we really appreciate your time today, Andomic, and thank you so much. No problem. I definitely enjoyed this, and I look forward to coming back and doing some more stuff with you guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. 
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.